All right, we're going to continue studying in 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's see, we didn't quite finish it last time. We ran out of time. Uh, So last time we were in Kings, we looked at Solomon building his own palace, and we saw all the bronze work that he had done for the temple, and... uh, Uh, We know all the bronze out there was a picture of judgment, but God brings us in from the outer courts of judgment into his holy presence inside the temple where the gold is there. Uh, We saw Solomon dedicate the temple, and we saw the cloud come down and fill the temple, the glory of God there, so that the priests had to get out. And um, we started reading Solomon's prayer of dedication, but that's what we weren't able to finish. So I'd like to start at the beginning of that again in verse 22. And uh, he's really going to show us some attributes of God through this prayer. So that's what I want to focus on this time from a different perspective than the last week when we were looking at it. So let's go ahead and pray here. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get into your word, Lord. Thank you for that testimony that Gene shared, Lord God. Thank you for all of our testimonies, Lord, of how uh, you revealed yourself to us, Lord. And saved our souls, Lord, and that you help us grow, Lord Jesus. Like Gene said, it doesn't end at salvation, Lord, but you continually reveal yourself to us more and more and draw us closer to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless this reading of your word, that it would just soak into our hearts, Lord God, that it would do a work in us, Lord, and that it wouldn't return void. I pray that uh, you would just speak to us now, Lord, and let uh, help me to step out of the way, Lord. Let my own words not be spoken, but your words through me, I pray. For your glory and honor, in your name I pray, amen. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22 says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So to set the scene here, Solomon's in the courtyard, courtyard of the temple, and he's a king, not a priest, so he's not allowed to go in the temple. And that's kind of important. Uh, later in Second Chronicles chapter 26, King Uzziah, he takes a censer of incense and he goes into the temple to offer it on the altar of incense as if he were a priest. And the priest followed him in there and they told him to get out, but he got angry with them and suddenly leprosy broke out on his forehead and started spreading through his body like that instant. And so the priest rushed him out of there and he was in a hurry to get out himself. And he ended up isolated in a house by himself because of the leprosy. So it's good that Solomon knows his place here, that he's a king and not a priest. So he's in the courtyard where he's allowed to be. He's given uh, glory to the Lord. And he has his hands raised to heaven as he makes this prayer to uh, all the, in front of all the people of Israel here that are gathered. So that's the scene we're at right here. In verse 23 it says, And he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like our God. And uh, we looked at this last week, uh, but again, there's no God like our God. There are Muslims who will say we worship the same God, but no They worship Allah, and it's a very different God from our God. And there's all these other religions, and they're like, oh, well, it's all basically the same. They're all, we'll get you to the same place, but it's really not. There's no God like our God. And we're going to look at his attributes now and see how he's different. So verse 24 goes on. 
You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So God is a promise-keeping God. And Solomon defines a promise-keeper. He says you have spoken it with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. A promise is kind of worthless if you don't really do what you say you're going to do. It's not really a promise then. But that's what our God does. He does what he says he will do. He's an acting God, a God of action. They aren't just words with him. On verse 25, Solomon goes on, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your son takes heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So God establishes kings, and this shows his power over government. That takes a lot of power. The government can be unpredictable. Throughout the whole Bible here, we see different kings assassinating their brothers to try and take the throne, and we try see how much work they put into that, but uh, God's in control of it all. It doesn't matter how big of a conspiracy they make or how great of an army they have or how great of a defense they have. You see that God just works around all that to fulfill his plan. He just foils everything else there. Verse 27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so Solomon recognizes that God is in heaven and not just in the temple. He realizes that this small temple can't contain such a great God. And he refers to this temple more like a meeting place to meet with God. And so, uh, you know, the pagans at that time, they'd have their idols set up in a shrine. And their idol was right there, you know. They weren't everywhere. They couldn't, they had to go there to pray to their idol. But uh, we'll see throughout here that we can pray to God anywhere. Our God isn't uh, confined to a temple or a church. He's everywhere. Verse 28 goes on. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplications, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So Solomon keeps referring to himself here as the Lord's servant, which implies that God is the master. And that's true, but God isn't just the master, he's a good master. He listens to our prayers, he hears us, and he acts upon our prayers. And uh, Solomon's going to keep petitioning God to listen to their prayers. And um, God does hear our prayers, he does answer them. Solomon asked God to keep watch over this temple, and we know that God's always with us. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a present help, a very present help in time of trouble. So I want to talk about God's presence and character here for a minute and take a detour. If you want to turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. This is just six verses in this chapter here. Uh, verse 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And that's what a good shepherd does. He leads his sheep to green pastures and still waters where they can eat and drink and grow. And that's what God does for us. Uh, just like Gene said, we read our Bible, we pray, and we grow that way. And it's really interesting, uh, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, in John chapter 6, it's interesting because he goes to the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up a mountain, you probably know the story, and a bunch of these people follow him there, and they want, uh, he sees that they're hungry, and he tells his disciples, well, give them some food to test his disciples, and they say, all we have are these five loaves and these two fish, and we know that Jesus multiplied it and fed the 5,000 people. But what's interesting there is uh, before he multiplied it, in John chapter 6, verse 10, it reads, Then Jesus said, Make them sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. So this is just what Psalm says. It says he makes us lie down in green pastures, and he leads us beside the still waters. And Jesus actually did that when he fed the 5,000. He said, Make them sit down. And there was much green pasture in that place. So Jesus is our good shepherd, and he literally uh, makes us sit down in the green pastures. On verse 3 there, it said, uh, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This verse really makes me laugh because it says, He leads us in the paths of righteousness. And then it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like, I thought we were on the path of righteousness. How do we end up in this valley? <laughs> but uh, that's what the Christian life is, though. There's a lot of valleys we have to go through. But it's not the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. And a shadow can't hurt you. They can be scary, but they can't hurt you. It's funny, when I'm at work by myself, sometimes I'll see something move over here, and I'll look real quick. And realize it was just my own shadow and I feel foolish. It's like, it's just a shadow, okay? There's nothing to be afraid of. But uh, that's what it's like. And um, death can't touch us. It's a shadow for us when you're a Christian. Because when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and come into your heart, that's when your eternal life begins. And we pass from death unto life. It doesn't stop. And the reason the psalmist isn't afraid is because God is with him. He said, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And God is with us, too. We don't have to be afraid. His rod and his staff comfort us. And the shepherd would use those tools to protect, uh, discipline, and guide his sheep. So, um, and another thing to realize is that the valleys are only temporary. He guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. But the place he makes us lie down is the green pasture. So... That's a really cool attribute of God to just focus on this and how he's our good shepherd, I think. In verse 5, it goes on, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So a person wouldn't usually eat a meal in the presence of their enemies. They'd eat real fast, or they wouldn't eat anything at all because they had a fight or they had a run because you're in the presence of your enemy. But that's not what God does for us. He prepares us a table in our presence of our enemies so we can relax and enjoy it. And uh, God's provision is more than enough for us. He says, my cup runs over. In verse 6 it goes on, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So God is good every day. He is merciful every day, and he will be for the, all the days of our lives. We never have to leave God's presence. We get to dwell with him forever. So that's our detour to look at the presence of God in Psalm 23 there. Back in 1 Kings chapter 8. We were at verse 30 here. Solomon continues praying. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So there's, he is asking God to hear their prayers. And we know that he does. So God's in heaven, but he has the ability to hear our prayers. And not only that, but he has the love and the power to forgive us. We'd be in trouble if God only had one of these attributes. If he could hear us, but he wasn't powerful enough to help us, that wouldn't be good for us. Or if he uh, could help us, but couldn't hear us, then how does that help? But he has both these attributes which is really good. You know, the idols they worshipped, they couldn't, didn't have either of those attributes. A statue couldn't hear them, and they couldn't do anything to help them. Uh, verse 31 goes on. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked bringing his way upon his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So God is just and a righteous judge. And some people will say, God will let me into heaven because he's a loving God. And that's true, but he's also a just judge. And he can't just let someone who is just covered in their sins into heaven. But because he's a loving God, he made a way for us to enter heaven. He gave his only son, Jesus, to die in our place, to be that perfect sacrifice for us so that we can be forgiven. Verse 33 goes on. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance." So we see here that uh, God's a landlord. He owns all the land of the earth. And even uh, when his people are taken captive, he's able to bring them back to the land that he gave them. And he's the one who gives the rain, as this verse says. Uh, throughout many cultures and civilizations, people have tried to appease different gods for different things. They'd worship this one god to give them rain. They'd worship another god to help them win wars. But uh, our God, the only true God, he's able to do all these things. Let's see. Uh, later in 1 Kings chapter 18, 10 chapters on from here, we hear the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And after three years of drought from the Lord, Elijah shows up and tells the people to decide if they're going to keep serving this idol or if they'll repent and serve God again. 
And he gives them the challenge. He says, let's both set up altars and you ask your God to start the fire and I'll ask my God to start the fire. So the pagans set up their sacrifice and they cried out loud and danced and they even cut themselves until the blood gushed on them, it says. And they did this for hours in this chapter. And it says, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's what their idol got them, nothing. And then it was Elijah's turn and he set up his sacrifice, just how the Bible said to. He followed that uh, order there. And it doesn't say that Elijah did anything fancy. It doesn't even say that he prayed out loud, or that loudly. But uh, in 1 Kings 18, verse 36, it says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trenches. So it sounds like a very simple prayer by Elijah. He didn't have to yell or dance or cut himself. He just had this simple prayer, and God heard him and answered it. And so, just like Solomon asked, he's like, hear our prayers, God, and act. That's exactly what happened for Elijah here. And then after that, God even caused the rain to come again and ended the drought. And God's merciful and he allows his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. In verse 37, Solomon goes on. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness is there, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. And uh, we looked at this last time, how God's not prejudiced. He deals with each of us on an individual level. Uh, he looks at the hearts of men, and yet he still loves us, because that's how great our God is. And uh, I ask God sometimes, I'm like, how can you still love me? You see my heart. You know, you'd think that anyone else would give up on you, but God still loves us because that's how great and loving he is. It's in his nature. It's who he is. He cares for his creation. Job chapter 14, verse 14 through 15 says, uh, talking about how much God loves his creatures here. It says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you, for you shall desire the work of your hands. And again, it's kind of that shadow of death that's scary from our perspective, and God sympathizes with us. He feels our pain and our grief for losing a loved one, but at the same time, we should try to look at things from God's perspective and feel the joy and excitement that he has for his loved ones when they are in heaven with him. 
And uh, God desires the works of his hands, that verse says. He longs for us, and so he is our good, loving creator. Uh, Solomon goes on back in 1 Kings 8, verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So God wants to reveal himself to people. He wants people to know him. Our God's a friendly God, and yet he is to be feared. Uh, people know, need to know to come to him in the right way, like we were talking about earlier. It's kind of like if you were to get an invitation to go eat lunch at the White House with the president, you probably you need to make sure you go in the right door and that you have the right security pass, or his bodyguards will probably take you out. <laughs> you need to go the right way to go see the president, but in, this, in a much greater way, we need to go the right way to see God. He's loving and he wants to get to know us, but we need to come through Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is our only way to get to God. Verse 44, Solomon goes on. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of their enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, you who uh, led them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and uh, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. So in that long section there, Solomon mentions that the people didn't need to be right at the temple for God to hear their prayers. And this was probably a crazy idea to the pagans of that day, like we mentioned earlier. But we see in Nehemiah and in Daniel that they still prayed fervently and with faith that God heard their prayers, even though they weren't they were so far away from the temple. And it's an awesome blessing that we're able to talk to God at any place and at any time. We also see uh, how long-suffering and patient God is toward us. This whole list that Solomon prayed through in his uh, prayer that we looked at today He's basically summarizing what's going to happen in Israel for the next 900 years. They're all their mistakes and all their consequences. 
and all the times that God would forgive them every time they repent. Every time that they repented, God forgave them and brought them back. And uh, he restored them. If you guys are ready for another detour, let's look at uh, Psalm chapter 103. We get a look at God's forgiveness there. This whole long prayer, Solomon keeps saying, hear our prayers and forgive us. He keeps asking God to forgive when they uh, repent and come back to him. In Psalm chapter 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So God is worthy of praise, and uh, it's, not, it's going to go on to list the benefits of the Lord, but he's worthy of praise before the benefits, which is interesting. In verse 3, it goes on. These are the benefits. Uh, he forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So God does a lot of things for us here. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, and he renews. And none of these are easy tasks. There's nothing that we can do on our own or for another person. It's just a huge thing done by God. Verse 6 goes on. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. So God is rich in mercy and grace and patience. He's not going to run out of these things. And I've known some people who are poor in these areas. They don't have much patience or they don't have much mercy. If you mess up just once, they aren't going to give you another chance. Or if you do just one small thing, it's enough to make them furious. But uh, that's not what our God is like. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve? Because I sure am. On verse 12 it goes on. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And there's a north pole and a south pole, but we know there's no east or west pole. It just goes on and on. If you decide to travel east and just keep going, you can keep traveling east. You're not going to reach an end. And if you decide to travel west and just keep going, you're going to keep traveling west. And so that's how far God has separated our sins from us. It's a forever amount. It's just an arrow in both ways. In verse 13, it goes on, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. So God looks at us from his perspective, and he sees us as children, and he pities us. And he remembers that he made us from dust. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, I don't expect much from dust. I don't have many expectations of it. And he sees that we are so temporary that we're like grass. 
And uh, these things cause him to be compassionate for us. It makes it easy for him to forgive us, looking at it from that perspective. In verse 13, it goes on. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 17. Uh, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So we are so pathetically temporary, but God's mercy is everlasting. Verse 19 goes on. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, who minister, uh, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So God is worthy of all praise. And now with God's forgiveness in mind, with his great benefits of forgiveness, his abundant mercy and grace and patience in forgiving us, his compassionate perspective he has toward us, uh, let me read Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 13 to you. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. What? I have to forgive other people that same way that God forgives me? Yeah, it's crazy. Like all that compassion, all that mercy and grace, that's how God tells us to forgive one another. And that's what we're called to do. Um, uh, also turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I want to look at this parable about forgiveness that Jesus talks about. And sorry we're going on another detour, but you guys have to forgive me. <laughs> Matthew uh, chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother, or how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And the rabbis of that day told the people, if your brother sins three times in one day, you have to forgive him up to three times. That was the rabbi's rule of thumb. So Peter thought he was being generous here and that God was going to say, oh, wow, you're long-suffering, Peter. But um, what does Jesus say? In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So 70 times uh, Peter's suggestion there. He's saying that you're always to forgive your brothers because no one's going to keep track of 490 transgressions in one day. Uh, verse 23, Jesus went on, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had began, begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, in today's money, that's at least $12 million dollars. Um, so it's a crazy, unpayable amount. Verse 25, it goes on. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down 
before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So we see that word compassion again and forgiveness. And the master released him. And there's a feeling of freedom when someone forgives you. You feel that weight lifted off you like, ah. Oh. Uh, verse 28, uh, but the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe me. Oh, I lost my place here. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The exact same thing that he begged of his master. But he would not, and went and threw him into prison, that he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So this man who was forgiven such a great unpayable debt of $12 million dollars, was angry and grabbed his fellow servant by the throat, demanding he pay him the three months' wages that he was owed. It's very hypocritical. In the, the servant even said the exact same thing that he said to his master, but he threw him in prison anyway. And he could have benefited if he left his servant free because he could have made payments on that debt. But if he's in prison, he's not going to get a cent from the guy. So there's really no benefit at all by throwing him in prison. And uh, you notice who all this wicked servant's unforgiveness affected. It definitely affected the guy who was thrown in prison. It affected that guy's family. It uh, grieved the other servants who saw it happen. They were grieved. It made the master angry. And it greatly affected this wicked servant because he himself was tortured by this unforgiveness. The Bible exposition commentary says... The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torture. So it's important that we forgive our fellow servants just like our master forgives us. As Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Uh, back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 51. Solomon goes on with his prayer now. He says... For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you have brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God." So Solomon's kind of reminding God how far he has brought the nation of Israel here. He's saying, you brought them out of Egypt, that iron furnace. Um, he's uh, just reminding him of all this. And it's funny because God doesn't need reminded. We all know that. But when you pray like this, uh, 
you're also reminding yourself of God's promises and of his goodness. So it's beneficial for us to pray like that because he's reminding himself there of how good God is. And our faith is so weak we need reminded. But God's faithful to complete the work he began in us. In verse 54 it says, And so it was, when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread out to heaven. So Solomon started praying in a standing position, but by the time he got through this long prayer, we see that he was kneeling. And um, that's a small picture of how prayer changes us. As we talk to God and uh, meditate on him, it moves us on the inside. Verse 55 goes on. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. So as Solomon blesses the congregation here, he's also reminding them of several things to strengthen and encourage them to follow the Lord. Uh, to summarize it, he says that God gives rest, God keeps his promises, God is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, God will draw us closer to him, God never forgets about us, he gives us what we need each day. God will use his testimony of working in our lives to reveal himself to others, and there is no other God. He fit all those uh, things in there in his blessing. In verse 62 it goes on, Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, fourteen days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his, Israel his people." So when Solomon first became king, he offered a thousand burnt offerings, and that was when God first appeared to him. And now he's uh, offering 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. 
PETA would be so upset if they heard about that. <laughs> but uh, it shows how much zeal that Solomon had for the Lord, though. With all these sacrifices, uh, the part they burned on the altar to the Lord, a part of it they cooked and uh, went to the Levites, and a part of it went to the people. And so they all had a bunch of food here as they celebrated the Lord for two weeks. It was a big feast. In that distance it mentions from uh, Hamath to the brook of Egypt, that's about 75 miles. So this is just a huge celebration they're doing. And uh, it was a great celebration because of the work that God did in making a permanent temple and giving the people rest from wanderings and from wars when uh, Moses was leading them through the desert for 40 years. And how much more should we celebrate for the eternal rest promised to us in the forgiveness of God and for the liberty to go before God's throne of grace. We got a lot more to be grateful for than the position that they were in. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for your forgiveness that we looked at today, Lord God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, your word would just continue to be in us, Lord, that we would continue to meditate on it, Lord, that you would just continue to minister to this people, Lord Jesus, and that you would be glorified. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would just be able to really realize your presence among us, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, that you're not confined to a church or a temple, Lord, but that you're in our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in our worship here and in our fellowship and as we go out this week, Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you do. In your name I pray. Amen.